Turn in your Bibles with me to Zechariah chapter 6. Zechariah chapter 6. And we'll be reading from verse 9 to 15. If I could ask you to join me in standing as we read God's word. Zechariah 6, verse 9. And the word of the Lord came to me. Take from the exiles Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver and gold, and make a crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne. And the council of peace shall be between them both. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Helam, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hin, the son of Zephaniah. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come into your house with your people to open your word and to hear a message from your mouth. We pray that as we focus upon this passage, that our eyes would be lifted to heaven, that we would see this man, the branch, and that we would see the honor, the majesty that he bears, that we would recognize him as our king and our priest, and that we would worship him and listen carefully to his voice. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, it was less than two weeks ago that President uh, Barack Obama addressed the nation to explain his path moving forward on the issue of immigration. Regardless of your philosophy about immigration, you had reason to be concerned with what he said. I say that not because of any political commitment I have, but I say it because of the reasons and the way in which he said he wants to move forward. You see, in our country, we have a clear division of powers, don't we? Our forefathers were not vague when they divided our government and separated the executive from the legislative from the judicial. Each branch has certain authority and it cannot touch the authority of each of the other branches. 
Our nation's built on the principle of separation of powers because we know how much evil and how quickly evil can be done when power is consolidated. We came from a king and we wanted something else. We prize the division of power. But in the passage before us this morning, we see not the separation of power. We see the consolidation of power. And I hope as we look at what God says, we won't be concerned with what we read here, but that we will be excited about God's plan to do away with the separation of power. As we look at this passage this morning, we're going to see first a dramatic setting. A dramatic setting and second, a divine message. The message comes in the midst of that setting. So let's look first at this dramatic setting. Again in verse 9, the word of the Lord came to me. Take from the exiles Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver and gold, and make a crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. The setting helps to paint a picture in our minds of what's going on. It's all a context for this divine message that's going to come in verses 9, uh, 12 to 15. But as we look at verses 9 to 11, we're going to see four elements to this setting. Four elements that build the drama of this setting. Look first at verse 9. And the word of the Lord came to me. This is an unusual formula. It's an unusual formula. Now, the word of the Lord came to me. If you've ever read one of the prophets, you should be saying, that's not unusual. In fact, in Ezekiel, it occurs 39 times. And something similar is found in this book at least eight times. So why am I saying it's unusual? Well, up to this point, what have we heard? Very little. What has, go, what has been going on in the book is seeing. It's been vision after vision after vision. It's been, I lifted my eyes and saw. Then I beheld. Then he showed me. And I lifted my eyes and saw. I saw. I saw. And out of that, at the end of all these visions, comes this. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, this is an unusual formula thus far in the book. It jumps out at us. The only other place it's occurred so far is in 4.8. And that is in the middle of a vision. This stands out. Stop everything we've done so far in the book. And now hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says. And so this strange formula, this difference, I saw, I saw, I saw, he said, grabs our attention and it builds the drama. The word of the Lord came to me. The second element in this dramatic setting is an obscure cast. 
an obscure caste. Look at verse 10. Take from the exiles Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Who? I, I, I know a Josiah. Yeah, that's not who this is talking about. I know a Zephaniah. That's not who this is talking about. Heldai? Tobijah? Jediah? Who are they? Well, they're kind of like blurry faces in the background. They're basically extras in a movie. It's important someone's there, but it doesn't matter who it is. If you've seen a crowd in a movie, the crowd can often be very important, but who they are doesn't matter. It just matters that they're there. The only thing we know about these people is that they apparently are connected to the priesthood because later on, they're found in the temple. So that's it. We don't know anything else about them. We know no significance about any one of them. They're just there. They're an obscure cast. And what that does is it makes the sides, makes the borders blurry, and that centers your attention in the middle about what is to happen now. The third element in the dramatic setting is an intriguing object. An intriguing object. Look at verse 11. Take from them silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua. Now, the unusual object is a crown. Do you remember the setting that Israel's in? They had just returned from the exile, but who was in control? By whose word did they come back? By the word of the Lord, yes, but by the Persians, by the Medes and the Persians. They're the ones who sent them back. There was no king in Israel. Zerubbabel was an heir to the king. But was there a crown on his head? No, in fact, he was not called king. He was called a governor. He was a governor. There was no king in Israel. So when we see a crown, our interest is piqued. We think, who's going to get a crown? And what will the crown be for? The crown representing power, authority, glory, or honor. What is going to happen to the crown? Because there is no crown in Israel at this time. If you look through the Old Testament, the first reference that we have to crown, this crown, is found on the head of David. And that's probably not coincidental. But this crown, we see and we say, what is that doing here? What is going to happen to it? Why is there a crown when there is no king? And so the drama builds. The dramatic setting becomes even more dramatic. There was no crown in Israel so what is a crown doing in this section? The fourth element in the dramatic setting 
is an unprecedented event. An unprecedented event. All eyes are on the crown. What's going to happen to the crown? And it's as if the camera zooms in on the crown and you see the hands holding up the crown and they come and they're about to set it down on the head and they set it down on the head but you can't see whose face it is and then the hands are removed and what does everyone want to know? Whose head is it on? Who is that sitting there being crowned? And we find it is on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And we say, what? You do not crown a priest. You crown a king. Joshua is not royal. He is a priest. Why is he being crowned? This event is unprecedented. If you consider the king is separated from the priesthood, and even that often was separated from the prophets. Similar, not the same, but similar to our own government. There's a separation of power, and for a reason. What would happen if a king decided that he was the priest? What would happen if the prophet said he wanted to become king? and all the power was in one place, the corrupt human heart would inevitably lead to evil. You may be familiar with King Uzziah in 2 Chronicles chapter 26. Take, take a look there briefly. 2 Chronicles 26. The notes say 1 Chronicles. That was a typo. It's 2 Chronicles. The whole chapter is about this great king, Uzziah. And Uzziah, unlike many of those who came before him, was actually a righteous king. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He set himself to seek God but guess what happened? Look down at verse 16. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God by entering the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Here is this great king who feared the Lord. And when he grew strong, he became Proud, And when he became proud, what did he want? Just a little more power. And so he marches into the temple with incense to burn on the altar of incense. And in a dramatic scene, all the priests come out to oppose him. I love it. Verse 18, and 80 of the priests come out and they withstood King Uzziah. And said to him, it is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord. There is a separation of power. And you know what God did that day? He caused leprosy to break out on Uzziah. You know where? 
on his forehead. As if to say, Uzziah, if the crown that you have is not enough for you, I'll give you a new one. And his head breaks out in leprosy. And he's humbled. He runs out from the temple because he knows the Lord has done this. And he's humbled. But here this great king tries to combine king and priest. And what happens? God says, absolutely not. So then back in Zechariah, when we see the crown being placed on the head of a priest, what's our reaction? What? What is going on? This is unprecedented. That's the setting, the dramatic setting. What is going on? Why is this happening? A change in the words, a unique formula, these obscure characters we don't know anything about, this intriguing object, the crown, and now an unprecedented event. The crown is placed on the head of a priest. What is going on? That brings us to our divine message. Now we get our message. This is the explanation of what's going on. I've divided this into two parts, the Lord's announcement and the Lord's anointed. We're going to look first at what the Lord says, and then we're going to look specifically at who this man is. Look at verse 12. And say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of priests, peace, shall be between them both. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Helam, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hin, the son of Zephaniah. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass, if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. The first aspect to the Lord's announcement, number one, is that this scene is not about Joshua. It is not about Joshua. Look again at 12a. And say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold the man whose name is the branch. They're all gathered in this house, the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. The priests are gathered around and in the middle is Joshua and Zechariah comes and puts the crown on his head. And God does not say, behold, I have made Joshua the branch. He looks at him and says, behold, the branch. Huh? I don't get it. Well, look back at Zechariah 3. Zechariah chapter 3, verse 8. You remember the priest with the dirty clothes? And the Lord gave him clean garments. 
And after, this is what he said. Verse 8, hear now, O Joshua the high priest. You and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant, the branch. Is it possible that Joshua is the branch? No, because God says to Joshua, I will send my servant the branch. And not only that, he says, you and your friends are a sign. And now what we're getting is an object lesson. Joshua is not the point. Joshua is pointing to something else more important. The shocking nature of seeing a crown placed on the priest is explained when you realize this isn't about Joshua. Because the Lord says, Behold, the man whose name is the branch. Further evidence to suggest that is in verse 14. And the crown, chapter 6, verse 14. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Helam, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hin, the son of Zephaniah. What does the Lord do with the crown? As soon as the scene's over, as soon as the object lesson has been taught, what happens to the crown? Does Joshua march in, sit on the throne of David, take over Israel? No, what happens to the crown? It's taken off his head and it's put in the temple as a reminder. This is not about Joshua. God is not bestowing on Joshua kingly power. God is using Joshua as a sign, as an object lesson, to point to something far, far greater. The second element to this announcement is that this scene will be a reminder. We read it in verse 14, take the crown, it shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder. So the scene is to remind us of something. It's not one and done, it's one and remember, remember, remember. The Lord tells us this will be something we're reminded of regularly. The third element to the Lord's announcement is that this scene will be confirmed. It will be confirmed. Look down at the end of, or at the beginning of verse 15. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Now that phrase, and or then you shall know that the Lord has sent me to you, is a confirmation Pastor Jeremy, I know, has mentioned this before. But when a prophet is telling you something that goes beyond our own lifetime, how can you confirm that it's true? If I told you tomorrow afternoon there's going to be hail and lightning and rain, if you wanted to know if I was a real prophet, what do you need to do? Just wait until tomorrow and see if it happens. And if it does, thumbs up, I'm a prophet. If it doesn't, thumbs down, put me to death. But I can wax eloquent about the year 2050 because none of us will be around to see it. So if I tell you in the year 2050, 2150, this will happen, this will happen, this will happen. If I'm talking about something hundreds of years in the future, how will any of us know if what I'm saying is true? 
And what the prophets would do when giving such distant prophecies is they would have a fulfillment in their lifetime that confirmed what would happen later on. And so this man whose name is the branch, who's going to build the temple of the Lord, this isn't going to happen in Zechariah's lifetime. But what he says in verse 15 is that you know it will come to pass when those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. Now, do you remember who was going to build the temple of the Lord in Zechariah's lifetime? God already told us. He already promised it to someone. Who did he say was going to build it? Zerubbabel. He said Zerubbabel will do it. And everyone who opposes him will be smashed. I'm going to make it happen. Zerubbabel's going to do it. So then how in, in the, the word of the Lord can the branch be the one to build this temple? Well, obvious conclusion, we're not talking about the same temple. The branch is not going to build Zerubbabel's temple. Zerubbabel will build his temple. The branch will be building another temple. We're not given any more detail than that. We'll come back to that later, though. But again, in verse 15, those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. Who do you think they're going to help? Zerubbabel. And guess what? It happened. People from far off, Israelites from lands far away, came back into the land to help build it. And let's read in Ezra chapter 6, its completion. You can just listen if you want. <clears throat> Ezra chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. Roughly, though there could be debate about it, roughly 515 B.C. Is that the date you got? Don't remember. All right, that's honest. Thank you. Good, because I didn't remember either. I had to look it up. <laughs> Roughly 515 B.C. This is years after chapter 6 of Zechariah. So what Zechariah is doing is confirming this prophecy regarding the branch. And he's saying it will be confirmed when the temple is built and those from far off come to help build it. And that's what happened. The fourth aspect to the Lord's announcement is that this scene is conditional. Conditional. At the end of verse 15, this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. Now, all I mean to say here is that when we start talking about prophecies, especially eschatology, things at the end, it's really easy for us to care a lot about the details of what's going to happen in the future and to miss the whole point of the prophecy. What the Lord is calling on 
the Israelites, what the Lord is calling on us to do is always the same thing. Purify yourselves, be prepared for the return of the Lord, listen diligently or diligently obey the voice of the Lord. We're not entirely passive in this. Though it's talking about something in the future, there's application for today. Now, let's look at the Lord's anointed. The Lord's anointed. Verse 12, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place and he shall build the temple of the Lord. And it is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. This is the man, the branch. The idea of a branch, I don't know what comes to your mind when I hear branch. I think of something really big, hard wood, strong. Uh, if that comes to your mind, that's not what's going on here. This is not a strong branch. You get a, a notion when he says, behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out. <clears throat> Probably more accurately translated bud or sprout. <laughs> but that doesn't sound as good. The, the sprout, the twig, the shoot, something like that. The idea that I'm, I'm, I'm making, or I'm trying to explain, is that this is not about strength. It's about growth. If you want to see the growingest part of a tree, where do you go? To the green, the soft parts of the tree. You don't go to the trunk. You don't go to the strong branches. But at the tip of the branch, what do you find? New growth is coming out. And that's the idea here. His name is the branch or the bud. The idea is that it's a new shoot growing and expanding, moving further. Not that it's strong already, but that it is branching out. So this branch will branch. He will branch. He will grow. He's already, I've mentioned earlier, three, chapter 3, verse 8, he's already been mentioned as the servant of the Lord. So the branch will branch out and the branch will build the temple. The branch will build the temple. He shall build the temple of the Lord. And then at the beginning of 13, it is he who shall build the temple of the Lord. He's going to build this temple. This is a temple not in Zechariah's lifetime, not even in our lifetime thus far. It's not happened yet. This is talking about the temple of the millennial kingdom. And remember Jesus' words, if you destroy this temple, I will build it or raise it up in three days. He will build a temple. Look at uh, Micah chapter 4 couple of books back. Micah chapter 4 and verse 1. 
It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. This is talking about the same time. The temple that uh, Zechariah is talking about is not the temple Zerubbabel's building. It's a temple yet to come. A temple where all the nations will come to worship the Lord. Third, the branch will bear majesty. He will bear majesty. Verse 13, it is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor. The idea is he will be kingly. He will be majestic. In Revelation chapter 1, when John sees the risen Lord, what does John do? He sees the Lord with eyes, a face like the sun, eyes of fire. And what does John do? He falls down at his feet like a dead man. Why? Because he bore honor, glory, majesty. It was too much even for Moses to look at. Remember, he could only see the backside of the Lord. This branch will bear honor. Fourth, this branch will be king. He will be king. In Revelation chapter 11 Listen to this description. We'll hear it sung in a couple of weeks. Revelation chapter 11. Then the seventh, seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That has not yet happened. It will. He is coming back. He will return. And when he returns, he will return as king to reign forever and ever without end. He will be king. Fifth, the branch will be priest. Look at verse 13. He shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne, and there shall be a priest on his throne. Not real happy with the ESV's translation there. That's, it's okay, but it's literally, he will be priest on his throne. Now it's third person, so it could be it. That is, there is a priest on his throne. But good night, what's the whole passage talking about? The branch, it's the branch, the branch, the branch. So who's going to be priest on his throne? The branch. The branch will be priest on his throne. This will be our priest. The book of Hebrews tells us in no uncertain terms that Christ is forever a priest, a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. We have such a high priest now. He will continue to be our priest. He will continue to be our priest. Sixth, the branch will bring peace. 
The branch will bring peace. Now there's three ways that I see the branch, the Messiah, bringing peace. Right now, every one of us, apart from God, is at war with God. If you are not in Christ, if you are not his child, you're at war with him. That's not peace. And so there's, there's three different ways, three different elements of peace that Christ will bring. The first way that he can make peace is the one that most of us have experienced. He brings peace with us by giving us new hearts, by redeeming sinners. And when he redeems us, instead of being at war with God, instead of raising our fist at him and hating him and trying to be our own God, what happens? We submit to him. We bow to him. And now we're not at war with the king. Now we're subjects of the king. That's the first way that he brings peace, by transforming people's hearts so that they are not at war with him and by forgiving their sins so that he is not at war with them. God has great wrath for sin. He hates sin. And the only way that he can bring peace is by paying for that sin. So that he can look in you and I, at you and I if we have faith in Christ and can say, Righteous, I do not hate you anymore. I do not hate your sin anymore. Forgiven, I see my son in him. And that can be yours this morning if you do not know him. If you will put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He can forgive your sins and you can no longer be at war with him. The second way that he brings peace is by removing sinners. He not only redeems sinners, he removes them. At the end of Revelation chapter 19, listen to what John tells us. Then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Skip down to verse 21. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. When Christ comes back to earth, if you are not his, he is not coming to save you. If you are not his, he is coming to slay you. Would that you would be ready. Would that he would come to rescue you instead but he will bring peace one way or the other. If you will not yield to him, he will destroy you. And once he has destroyed you, there will be peace because all of his enemies have been set aside. And a third way that he brings peace 
is by reconciling sinners. The Lord Jesus will make everything right in the end. You and I have agreements and disagreements. People in other churches we might agree with or disagree with. But none of it's perfect. We have fights, don't we? I think of the tragedies going on in Ferguson right now. And I think that is anything but peace. Anything but peace. And I see both sides. I see the outrage on one side and I see the outrage on the other. And the solutions that this world has are completely broken. They have no solution. I've got a solution. We need a king. We need a king named Jesus to sit on the throne and to rule with the rod of iron, not only over this nation, but over all the nations of the world. And it will come to pass. It will happen. He will reconcile black and white. He will reconcile Russians and Ukrainians. He will, re he will reconcile the Hutu and the Tutsi. There will be peace on this earth so that we, all the nations and languages of this world, can worship him together. Will you be a part of that when he comes to reconcile us to him set aside his enemies, and reconcile us to each other. Let's finish just by looking at a couple points of application. Understand why we separate powers. The reason we separate powers in our government is because we have wicked, sinful, corrupt, depraved hearts and minds. Do not give total power to anyone in this room, <laughs> especially me. Don't do it. The lure and the temptation of power is too great for any one of us to bear. But do you know what? It is not too much for the Lord Jesus. He deserves total power. And with his total power, he will not be totally corrupted. He will be totally perfect, perfectly loving. The weakness of our government is the separation of power. The strength of our government is the separation of power. It prevents us from going downhill fast. And it prevents us from going uphill fast too. That's why we separate powers. But when the Lord comes, no such need will exist. Second, listen to the voice of the Lord. I can't can't get through this passage without saying it. If you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. Are you listening to him? Are you obeying him? Don't miss the call to listen to his voice. Diligently obey. Carefully listen to what he says. And lastly, marvel at the majesty of the Messiah. Let me read in closing 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. When He comes on that day, 
to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. When the Lord Jesus comes, he comes to be marveled at, to be adored, that we might be in awe of him, to glorify him for his greatness, for his glory. That is why he is coming. Let's be prepared for that. Let's practice that. Let's do it even now. As I invite the worship team back up, listen to these words from the beginning of our final song. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. Let's marvel at his majesty and join our voices together in praising him now.